Good morning, Keystone. You can uh, open up to Daniel chapter 4 if you want to. That's where we're going to be this morning to conclude our series called Fight for Joy. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 28 through 37 this morning. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite things to do in the evening when I have time is to sit down and watch an episode of Jeopardy. I realized that like, as the youth pastor, by admitting that in a crowd this size, I immediately lose some cool points. Uh, but I'm also 31 years old at this point, and I'm pretty sure I'm already in the negatives as far as cool points, so I don't think it really makes any difference. Uh, but if you, if you follow Jeopardy, if you watch it, or probably even if you don't, you know that the longtime host, uh, Alex Trebek, passed away in November. And uh, the current host, the guest host, Ken Jennings, opened up his first episode with a tribute to Alex Trebek. And here, here's what he said about him. He said, I can't overstate how great of a man Alex Trebek was. And one of the things that made him great was actually his humility. Here was a TV legend. And yet the last time I spoke to him with advice about hosting, what he reminded me of was something he had said many times. The contestants, not the host, are the star of Jeopardy. He always put the players and the game ahead of himself. He was an amazing man. Alex Trebek knew that he had a specific role and purpose to play every time that he recorded Jeopardy. Not to make much of himself, but to make much of the contestants and the show. And if you ever would have turned on Jeopardy to find Alex Trebek telling stories about himself or making all these jokes, you probably would have thought, what, what is going on? What's, what's wrong right now? Why is this off? In a similar way, we as Christians would say, as humans, we've been given a very specific role and purpose to play in this world. It's, it's why uh, Isaiah 43.7 would say we've been created, that God has created us for his glory. It's why 2 Corinthians 5.15 would say Jesus died for us, giving up his life for us, that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him. That our purpose, our role, the, the reason that we sit here right now breathing is to make much of God. To make much of God with our entire lives, with everything we say, we do, and we think. That, that we aren't the stars of our own game show, but we are part of the worldwide show that makes much of our God. And, and this is part of why I would say, we, because we've been designed in this way, that we find joy in exalting and making much of God, in worshiping him. And pride is so deadly because it would invert and distort our purpose and our role. That pride would say, no, to find joy, we actually need to make much of ourselves. We need to have other people focus on us. We need to shine the spotlight back on us. That rather than finding ourselves in God's story, we should create our own story with us as the director and the lead actor. And this is part of why pride is often listed first on the list of these seven deadly daily sins that we've been covering. Because it distorts our very purpose for why we have life. 
C.S. Lewis, uh, I'm going to quote him twice today uh, because he has a great chapter about pride in mere Christianity. And he says this at one point. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. But if, if we want to have a definition of pride this morning, maybe here's one that we could use. Pride is thinking much about oneself and much of oneself. It's thinking much about myself and thinking much of myself. And to look at pride, we're going to look at the story or a story of King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. Because I, I think that, or my hope is, my goal is that we might see in it uh, the methods of pride, some ways that pride attacks us, the madness of pride, why it is so foolish, and yet also a great medicine for us to take in fighting back against pride in our own lives. We're just going to take it kind of bit by bit, not reading the whole story, uh, but just reading parts at a time this morning. But let me pray for us before we jump into Daniel 4.28. Father, like we just sung as a congregation, you alone are holy, Lord. You alone are awesome. You alone are worthy. You alone are majestic great, just, righteous, gracious. You alone deserve to be worshipped by us. And it's in worshipping you that we, we find our greatest joy because that's what we were made for. And so God, I pray this morning that you would help us to be able to see the, the foolishness of pride, but also how it is so present I know it's so present in my own life, and so I pray that you would expose it in all of us this morning, but that you wouldn't leave us in conviction, but you would help us to see how do we fight back? How do we fight back in the power of your spirit so that we might fight for joy and fight to make much of you with our lives? God, we, we want you to be exalted this morning, and so we pray that you would be worshiped and honored and glorified during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Daniel chapter 4 is actually, the whole chapter is a letter that King Nebuchadnezzar has written and sent out to his empire, Babylon. Babylon is the world superpower of the day, and King Nebuchadnezzar is the current ruling king. So we can think of he is the most famous, the most powerful, and the most wealthy person in the world at this time. And in chapter 4, he's recounting some things that have happened in his life starting with this dream that he had of a giant tree, an incredible, beautiful tree covering the whole earth that then gets chopped down. And Daniel comes and interprets that dream for Nebuchadnezzar saying, that's you. God is going to cut you down and then pleads with Nebuchadnezzar, you repent, turn back to God so this doesn't happen. And then we pick up 12 months later in verse 28. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, 
Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. I think we get a good picture of Nebuchadnezzar's pride and maybe how pride would strike us as well in those verses. That King Nebuchadnezzar looks out over this incredible city of Babylon, the greatest city of his day. He's got a skyline view and here's what he says. Look at Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Nebuchadnezzar looks out at Babylon and sees himself. And this is the core of pride, a preoccupation with self. How often, how often do we look out over a group of people and ask, what do they think of me? How often do we look at a circumstance or a relationship and ask, how will this benefit me? How often do we look at our lives' accomplishments or even failures and say, look at what I've done? Nebuchadnezzar was far more important, far greater than any of us will ever be. I think we're safe in saying that but we still have the same type of preoccupation with self, temptation to focus on self that he does. And so I would say it's important for us to recognize in this point, okay, what are some of the methods, the ways that Satan would try to attack us with pride? Because we're only as successful in our battle against sin and especially pride if we first of all see how does it stir up in our own lives? How does Satan attempt to attack us with this? We, we might think of it in this way. What, what makes some of the greatest quarterbacks in the NFL great? I would argue it's not necessarily their athletic ability. They might be very athletic, but what makes them great is something else, I think. And, and I, I prove this by, just think of Tom Brady, who is, who is the greatest quarterback of all time. Sure, he's got a great arm, but have you ever seen him run in a game? He looks like a sloth among cheetahs out there. He's incredibly slow. So what makes him so great? His ability to look out at the defense, see what they're doing, see how they're attempting to attack him, see how they're camouflaging it, and then pick them apart that he sees their methods and then responds. And in the same way against sin and pride, I think we, we become better through God's power at fighting pride when we see some of its methods and how it attacks us in our lives. And so I, I wanna point out three this morning. One is related to Nebuchadnezzar, two are, are, are other ways. There's lots more than this that you might think of, but, but I believe these are three good starting points for us to see how pride might be stirred up in our own lives. First of all, pride attacks with self-importance, pride attacks with self-importance. And if you're following along in the notes, uh, I've got three other blanks underneath there. I'm not giving anything to put in those blanks. It's just there to think of how do these things show up in my own life? But, but here are the, the three blanks that are in there. That, that we might say, because I am blank, I'm really important. Because I am a really hard worker, because I am 
athletic, because I am such a good mom or dad or grandparent, because I am really smart, because I am a conservative, because I am a Christian, because I am a, a pastor. I'm important, we might think. Or, or we might think, because I did blank, I am important. Because I graduated from this great college. Because I went on a missions trip or I served in missions for several years. Because I started and ran a successful business. Because I volunteered much of my time. Because I was the top scorer on my 1984 soccer team or all sorts of other things that we might list there. Or, or you might think, because I have blank, I am important. Because I have a nice bank account and a 401k. Because I have so many followers on Instagram. Because I have a nice big truck. Because I have a nice home that I've fixed up and taken care of. Because I have two grown children who are serving the Lord. If you notice, none of those things that I just listed in any of those categories were bad. But pride takes good things, takes credit for them, uses them to boast in ourselves and to look down on other people. Because I have this that they don't have, because I am this that they aren't, because I did this and they didn't, I am more important, I am better. Where, where in your life do you look to thinking, I am more important than other people because of this? Or where do you maybe look at and think, I really want people to recognize me and praise me because of this? Pride is lying close at hand. Pride is most likely behind that. But, but we might say too, we might say, well, I don't really think I'm that important at all. In fact, I often feel horrible about myself. I feel like all I do is a failure, that I can't do anything good, that, that my life is miserable and unfortunately, we'd see, well, pride is there as well. That pride attacks with self-pity. Any place we would be prone to say, woe is me, to complain about how bad things are going for us. Any place we would think, I, I deserve better than this. And maybe you can see how pride is at the heart of envy that we talked about last week there. Pride is lying close at hand. The, the people who are most self-conscious about what do other people think about me are thinking more about themselves than anything else. They're, they're focused on self. When I walk into a room full of people and all I can think about is, what do they think about me? That's because pride is stirring in my heart. See, self-pity would have us just as so preoccupied with self as self-importance. It's just we're preoccupied with self because we feel miserable, or we feel like our life has been a failure, that, that we are the, the victims rather than the victors. And pride would stir up in our heart because of that. And, and then the third way, that pride attacks with self-righteousness. I think we all already know this, but this is a particularly dangerous, dangerous form of pride for anyone who finds themselves in a church, which is all of us this morning. And it's really an offshoot of self-importance, but I believe it's good for us to take it some time and focus on it a little bit more, especially in light of the series that we're doing. And so we, we see this most clearly in a parable Luke tells 
or Jesus tells in Luke 18, a parable you're probably familiar with, that Luke tells the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And here's what he says, Jesus says. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of my income. Anywhere we think or feel in our minds and hearts, thank goodness I'm not like that person. Thank goodness I don't do that. Thank goodness I don't say that or act that way. Pride is attacking us with self-righteousness. This, by the way, and maybe we should have said this at the start of the series, but I think it's just as good to say to the end, this is part of the danger of preaching a series on the seven deadly sins. Because we might sit throughout this series and start to think, thank goodness I'm not greedy. Thank goodness I don't blow up in anger. Thank goodness I don't struggle with lust. Thank goodness I'm not lazy. And we think of all the people in our minds who do fit that category. And all the while, Satan is leading us step after step after step farther into pride. Or we might even think, I, man, I, I am convicted in this area. That is a struggle for me. But we only fight back in our power and our effort rather than seeing the need for God's grace. And so if we ever achieve any victory against that certain sin, we just end up crediting ourselves. And here's, again, what C.S. Lewis says, puts it very bluntly. The devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. I, I hope we're, we're seeing a little picture of just how deep pride runs and how many different forms it can show up in because there's lots more than just those three. Pride, pride we might say, is like an onion. Not because it stinks, not because it makes our breath smell bad, but because you peel back one layer and there's another layer underneath. And you peel back that layer, and there's another layer underneath. And that in our battle against pride, we might fight in one area only to then find pride popping up in another area. And I, I don't say that to make us discouraged, but I say that to show us how important it is to pick up arms and to wage war against pride anywhere that we do see it popping up in our own lives. And in this, we need to be able to first see, okay, where is it that Satan is attacking us with pride? I actually want to stop here before going to the next point uh, and just take a minute to pray for us. Brandon said in one of his sermons that he did this on this series that to sit uh, all week and study this thing just exposes it even more in his own life. And I felt that way with pride this week just sitting inside, thinking, how prideful can I be? How, how proud my heart is at times. And, and I think Satan would want, when we see that, to then leave us kind of in self-pity, wallowing in guilt and say, you're a mess, what's wrong with you? And God would want us to say, no, 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 run to me. 
run to me, find grace, and find the power to fight back. And so I want to pray that even before we jump into our next point and look back at the story. God, pride is uh, so good at camouflaging itself and its attacks on us. And yet when we do see it in our lives, Satan is so good at pointing the finger and condemning us and saying, you can't get your act together. What's wrong with you? And yet, God, you convict so that we might find grace in Christ. And so I do pray that you would expose in us this morning, whether in, these, in this previous point or in the, the upcoming things, pride in our lives. But I pray that ultimately we would then look to Christ knowing we have grace in him, forgiving us of our pride, as well as power to fight back. God, we, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I do want to get to how we fight against pride, and we're, we're going to get there with the last point. But before we do that, I want to jump back into our story in order to see the, the madness of pride, answering the question, why is pride so foolish in some ways? So we could pick back up in verse 31 in Daniel. This is right after Nebuchadnezzar has boasted on his rooftop. And here's what happens. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way, until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled. And Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of the heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as the eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. We can see God responds to Nebuchadnezzar's pride by literally having him go mad. He becomes like a ox, a cow who eats grass, his nails grow long, and his hair grows long. And God responds in judgment this way on Nebuchadnezzar because we know God opposes pride. God hates pride. We could look at lots of other passages in the Bible that would teach us this. Uh, and 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Proverbs 8.13 are just a couple examples, but there's many more about how God hates pride, opposes pride. And so he judges Nebuchadnezzar for his pride. But I also believe in this judgment, God is giving us a picture of pride of just how mad it is, how insane it is in some ways. That the pride is madness because it sets us up in opposition to God. It sets us up to be opposed to our very creator. And it does that especially in two ways, where we try to replace God and we try to rob God. The first would be that pride leads us or pride seeks to replace God as king. If you read through all of Daniel chapter four, you see this one phrase repeated three times about why God is going to humble Nebuchadnezzar. And here's what it is. It was in verse 32 as well. Until you learn that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. God is teaching Nebuchadnezzar, you are not the ultimate king. I am. And Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to have you go mad so that you would see I am the most high. I am the one who rules over 
everything. Nebuchadnezzar in his pride tries to elevate himself above God and pride does the exact same thing in our own lives. Andrew Murray put it this way, talking about all sin, but I think pointing to pride. All the sin is but the outgrowth of one root, God dethroned, self-enthroned in the heart of man. This is, by the way, why we would say pride is at the root of all the other deadly sins we've talked about. That wherever we find sin in our lives, pride is laying underneath. That every time we might think, or we might say, I know better than God in this area, what's good for me, what's right for me, and what might be harmful for me. We are grasping for his throne. Every time we think I know better than him, every time we think God is not enough for me, I need something else to satisfy me. Every time we think God will not take care of me and meet my needs in this area, I've got to do it myself. We are attempting to put our place or put ourselves in the place of God saying, I would make a better king than God. All sin has at its root, I would make a better king than God. And that's madness. That, that's not, no, we're not walking around uh, eating grass, having our nails turn into claws. But we are the, the dust of the earth looking up at the sovereign king of the universe and saying, I'd make a better king than you. What, what else could be more mad than that, more insane than that? But pride doesn't stop there just trying to replace God. It also tries to steal his glory. The pride seeks to rob God of glory. It's in essence taking what does not belong to us. Nebuchadnezzar looks out over his kingdom that God has given him and he takes credit for all of it rather than giving credit to God. He takes the spotlight and shines it right back on himself. And because of that, God says, this is mad and I'm going to have you go insane. Uh, many of you, I think, probably know what this is. It's, it's a spotlight, but uh, it's specifically for deer spotting. And I'm just going to assume most of you know what that is because this is Lancaster County. Uh, but if you don't, here's what deer spotting is. You, they probably have newer ones. This was my dad's. So you would plug it into your cigarette lighter and then shine it out the window. Uh, but you, in deer spotting, get in your car. You go out at night while it's dark, have someone driving, and then someone else who has this spotlight shining out the window at any fields to see how many deer there are in there. I don't know why it's so exciting and so much fun. Like, I really don't know. But it is, because as a kid, I remember getting so excited when we were going to go deer spotting. And I also remember being taught whoever is holding this has a lot of responsibility because you, you learn you are not supposed to shine this at any houses as you go by. You shine it down on the road. And you're not supposed to shine it at other cars. You, you just shine it out into the field. And, and you would never, ever think of taking it, shining it back into the car and right onto your face because this is a really powerful light and can do damage when you shine it at someone else or you might shine it back at yourself. If, if you can picture with me someone who goes out deer spotting and rather than shining this out into the fields to see the deer, spends the whole time just shining it right back into their eyes. That, that's what pride does. Our, our lives either are a spotlight pointing to how great God is, how awesome he is, 
or they're a spotlight we use to shine back on ourselves and say, look at me and look at how great I am. And just as if you saw someone shining this in their face, you would run up and say, don't do that. That's harmful. That's dangerous. That's mad. So pride, or God looks at Nebuchadnezzar and says, pride will have you go mad because you will shine the spotlight back in your own eyes rather than shining it onto me. Pride, pride is madness because we try to rob God of what he's due because we try to replace him and because we become less than human in the process, doing what we were never designed to do. So that leads to, all right, how do we kill it? How do we fight back against it? And I love this passage because I believe it gives us a really good medicine to take in fighting against pride. Not the only one, there are definitely other ones, but I do believe this is one of the greatest ones. So let's look back in our chapter and find Nebuchadnezzar, as it says, he regains his sanity. Verse 34, after this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the peoples of the earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. What is the thing that pulls Nebuchadnezzar out of his pride? What is the thing that gives him his sanity back, that makes him humble? Getting his eyes off himself and onto someone greater, God. The, the Bible would tell us over and over again that humility is the opposite of pride that we often see those two in passages together. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That we're called to put off pride as Christians and put on humility. And yet I wanna ask, okay, how do we do that? How do we become humble in our lives? Do, do we do it by thinking, I'm, I'm a proud person and I really need to try to be more humble. I really need to focus on being more humble. I have to be more humble, I have to be more humble. Well, that, that would in some ways, tempt us to just focus on ourselves even more as we try to become humble. And humility, C.S. Lewis put it best, I think he talks about it as humility is like self-forgetfulness. That it's not thinking uh, less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. You just don't think about yourself. How does that happen? When we become preoccupied with someone or something greater. We might, we might picture it in this way. If you could imagine yourself I don't know if any of you have been there, but if you could imagine yourself standing at the foot of Mount Everest, right in front of you, and you look over it and there's someone else standing beside you who has their phone out, just scrolling through the, the latest news stories, the latest sports scores, uh, playing Among Us or whatever the latest game is, uh, scrolling through Snapchat. What might you say to that person to get them to put their phone down? Look up! Mount Everest is right in front of you. This is the greatest mountain in the world. That to, 
to get them to give up being preoccupied with this, they might become preoccupied with, look at this incredible thing standing right in front of me. And in the same way, what might lead us to be humble? To become preoccupied with someone far greater than us, God. And in the process, in some ways, just forget about ourselves. The, the, the big idea I have on there for this morning is the battle with pride is won by fixing our eyes on the greatness of God. I think the greatest medicine for pride is to see how great God is. There, there are other ones, but I think this might be the greatest medicine. And so I want to give, what are four ways, there are many more again, but what are four ways we might see the greatness of God and so fight back against pride and have humility produced in our lives? One, to see the greatness of God in creation. This seems so obvious, but in a world where we are so distracted and so busy running from one thing to the next to the next, we've got to be reminded part of where God has displayed his greatness and wants us to see it is all around us in this world he's made. Isaiah 40 is a passage that's helped me in this area. It's an incredible passage. And here's some of what Isaiah says. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. That when we look out over the ocean, we could picture God holding those oceans in the hollow of his hand. Who, who has measured, who's marked off the heavens with a span? It's the idea from your thumb to your finger. Who, who has enclosed the dust of the earth in, in a measure? Who has weighed the mountains, including Mount Everest in scales and hills in a balance? To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. He goes on and says, lift up your eyes on high and see the stars, the moon. Who created these? Who brings their host out by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. I found Isaiah 40 and Job 38 through 41 to be great passages that help me to see the greatness of God in this world. And beyond, there are other passages like that too. And beyond just maybe reading and meditating on those, another way to fight pride in some ways might be to go out for a walk in the woods, to go sit along a beach, to, to wake up and see the sunrise, to sit out under the stars at night, and to just spend time thinking, how great is our God? How great is our God? And watch as we become much less preoccupied with ourselves in those moments. Second way, see the greatness of God in his character. And I would say, especially his sovereignty. That we might take time to focus and dwell on some characteristic of God, meditate on it, think about it, and ask the Holy Spirit, help me to worship God because of this. And I said, especially his sovereignty, because I think his sovereignty can just be a knockout punch to pride. This is what happens for Nebuchadnezzar when he says, I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. Why? Because his rule is everlasting. His kingdom is eternal. All the peoples of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of, of heaven and among the people of earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? That God's sovereignty might show us that he rules over all things and we might see how great he is and how small we are. Three, See the greatness of God in his humility. And we'd be looking specifically at Christ here, God coming as a man. 
We could even see in this story how, thinking about Nebuchadnezzar looking out over his kingdom and thinking, look, look, look at what this says about me. And think about a later time when Jesus stands looking out over all the kingdoms of the earth and Satan says, they can be yours if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, no, I'll take the path of humility and I'll walk to a cross so that I would die, he would die for us and then be exalted so that we might be exalted with him. Jesus shows us forever the way to greatness is humility and trusting God to exalt us. How, how, how does pride make any sense if we say we love a savior who says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, like in Mark 10, 45. And then lastly, this might be my favorite, see the greatness of God in our salvation. God has designed your salvation, my salvation, to forever say he is great and I am not. And 1 Corinthians uh, 26 through 30, or 1, 26 through 31, I think puts it best. Here it is. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Translation, God didn't choose you as a Christian or me as a Christian if my faith is in Christ because I was so great or I had anything to offer. He chose me because I was weak and I was a loser and I needed him to save me. God, God is like a coach, or maybe we even say a, a team captain on the playground who looks out over the options and doesn't choose the strongest, the best, the most athletic, but chooses the weakest, the frailest, and the smallest so that when he wins, no one, no one might say, well, you just had the best players, but might say, no, you won because you are awesome. Whenever we start to think we're so great we might look back at our salvation, remember. No, God chose us to demonstrate his greatness because we are weak. This is where we could say, well, I want to first give a John Piper quote, actually, that I think sums all this up. He says, is not the most effective way of briling my delight in being made much of to focus on making much of God. Self-denial, crucifixion of the flesh are essential, but oh, how easy it is to be made much of even for my self-denial. How shall this insidious motive of pleasure in being made much of be broken except through bending all of my faculties to delight in the pleasure of making much of God? We might say citizens of God's kingdom are humble worshipers. I, I want to wrap up, conclude this morning, and in some ways this whole series with this. I think we know this already, but I, but I believe it's a good reminder. The fight against pride the fight against all sin is a long distance race, not a sprint. A long distance race, not, not a sprint. I, I love getting to hear people talk about running a long distance race. And I'm talking about like on a hundred mile race because you hear them say things like, I could be feeling great in one moment and in the next moment I was feeling awful. You hear them saying things like, I couldn't focus on what was 10 miles ahead of me. I had to just focus on the step that was right in front of me. 
And what mattered for that person, what matters for the long distance racer is not necessarily how fast they're going, but are they headed in the right direction? Are they headed in the right direction? I said, that's the same thing for us when it comes to battling sin. That as we wage war against sin, we need to remember it's not a once and done skirmish. It's a daily, day after day, hour after hour, we don't even say minute after minute, battle. And that might discourage us because we might think, oh my goodness, I'm going to be fighting this the rest of my life. But that's only if we forget Jesus has already won. Jesus has defeated Satan and sin. And so we are on the winning side in the end. And so we, we wake up tomorrow, we go out of here today, picking up arms and waging war against sin because we know we are on the winning side by faith in Christ. And, and that's not to say that we'll never lose. We'll lose lots of battles along the way but we know we are united by faith to the one who has already won and who will bring that victory completely one day. And so we, we wake up and we fight sin, fighting for a greater knowledge of God, a greater trust in God, a greater love in God to glorify him with our lives, knowing that that will bring us joy. And all along we make much of him and not of ourselves. Let me pray for us. Father, you are great beyond our wildest dreams. We, we only get small glimpses of your greatness in this life. And God, you have called us as followers of Christ to wage war against the sin in our lives, to wage war against the sin in our lives that would steal us from having joy in knowing and trusting and glorifying you and would instead have us Put ourselves on your throne. God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin because we so desperately need that. But we also pray that your Holy Spirit at the same time would give us hope, knowing that we are on the winning side in Christ and by his power and his grace, we can fight back. And God, we long for and look forward to the day all along where he will return and completely eradicate sin. We pray this in his name. Amen. <laughs>